All right. Amos, let's pray. <laughs> Father, we're opening your word now, so we ask for your wisdom and guidance and your spirit to speak to our hearts as we see your holiness expressed against great sin and uh, people that were called by your name. We ask for understanding in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Um, this morning we're coming to the main point of the prophecies of Amos. So God sent Amos to prophesy against the northern tribes of Israel. But for quite a while, um, at the beginning of the book, Amos hasn't said a word about Israel, even though that's the whole point of his prophecy. Nothing direct yet. So he's gone after all the neighbors. He's gone north to Syria, east across the Jordan, southeast and further southwest, Ammon and Moab. He's gone far south to Edom. Then he went to the west where the Phoenicians live on the coast and then south from there where the Philistines live on the lower part of the coast there. And all of them had prophecies directed at them for their sins and specific crimes of atrocity that were mentioned for each one. They all deserved judgments for their sins. These were pagan nations. And pagans are going to pag. I mean, you know, that's just kind of the way it is or something like that. Last week we saw Amos prophesy against the kingdom of Judah. Originally Judah and Israel were one people, one nation, different tribes, but one nation, God's chosen nation. But like churches that don't get along, they split. And they divided the people of God and, and the people wanted kings like all the other nations had and God let them have kings and they ended up being kings like all the other nations have, most of them. Living for power, honor, wealth, and they, they did everything opposed to God. They didn't care about God, they cared about their own power. Judah, we saw last time, the southern kingdom of God's people, Amos chapter 2, Verse 4 and 5, Judah stood condemned for rejecting the commandments of God. Verse 4 says, because they rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes, their lies also have led them astray. Those after which their fathers walked. That's just truly tragic, but it's pretty normal. I mean, that kind of thing happens all the time with people and peoples. Um, they reject God. They, but human nature has a bent against God. It's kind of born in us. We have this natural bent against him. And only by his grace do we understand and then repent and then come humbly to him and find forgiveness and mercy. Only grace brings that about. But now Amos has kind of drawn this circle around Israel and now he's going to draw the target, <laughs> the, the center. He's going to go right for Israel itself starting in verse 6. He draws the bullseye. So you'll notice it begins with the exact same formula as the other nations we've read about the last couple of weeks. It says, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke its punishment. The same pattern there for each of them. Each prophecy against the other nations begins that way, but the other nations, for those other nations, he basically mentions one sin. So he says for three and for four, saying there's all kinds of sins, but then he identifies specifically just one sin for all these other nations. But with Israel, the principal target here, the list is much longer and gets into much more detail. So we talked uh, in our first Amos lesson about Hebrew poetry and I've got to point some things out here. So Hebrew poetry we said is painting pictures with words. Mainly that's what it's doing. Does it's, Sometimes it's more like sentences but 
We're going to see that in today's text, this painting pictures with words, and some of them are kind of hard to grasp. Okay, and people have different opinions about what exactly is being talked about with some of the phrasing here, so just be aware of that. We also talked about ancient Israel. I mean, we're talking about 2,700 years ago. That's pretty long. It's a long time ago. They have a culture and they use language that's different and their culture's different so there might be some things hard to grasp and even hard to translate and so that's true in a couple of places in today's text. I'll talk about them but just to warn you. So the original hearers, the guys that were originally being prophesied to, they would go, oh okay that's what that's talking about, we get it. But today we're looking back and we're going, what exactly are they talking about for some of this stuff? So some of it's a little bit difficult even for big scholars, super brilliant people because it's still long ago and things that were common linguistically then might not be known to us today. So um, let's take the second couplet in verse 6 there. It says, so um, God says that same pattern. Then he says, because they sell the righteous for money and the needy for a pair of sandals. So he's painting a picture. And this verse and those that follow paint a completely disgusting picture um, of sin and sin on top of sin and then more sin on top of the sin that's on top of the sin. I mean it's just a, it's a horrible description of them as a people. So the sin in verse 6 pretty clearly relates to taking advantage of the poor. That's the main idea. Now in Israel according to the law of Moses if a person got so underwater financially as we like to say that they couldn't pay their debts and it was just a chronic situation they could sell themselves into slavery and then they would serve somebody else for six years and at the end of that six years on the seventh year they could go they would go free and then they were to be given enough stuff to start a new life with so that's how it that's how slavery worked in Israel totally different than American slavery but um, they could do that so it, it you know think about it it's a big step to sell yourself into slavery right I mean even a more gracious form like that but uh, it's a significant loss of freedom. You're serving somebody else. Obviously good-hearted people would not want someone to get into that position where they had to do that unless there was really no choice. I mean that really is what had to happen for them. And it was actually a blessing for them because again it got them a fresh start after a period of service. But this verse kind of implies that for basically nothing they would take your labor for six years. It doesn't say that flat out but that seems to be what it's implying here. Like sir I can have the money I owe you in two weeks. Nope! You pay me today or you, I've got you for six years. That kind of thing. Sir I'll pay you for those sandals I bought on Tuesday or whatever. Nope! You're going to serve me for six years. And the sandals idea, a pair of sandals, that creates a picture of something very simple, everyday, inexpensive, normal stuff. And it demonstrates the heartless and greedy way that this law, which was meant for good, might be corrupted. What if a poor man thought that was not what Moses was talking about, something that simple, and went to the elders for help? The, the courts of justice in their community, the, the leading men of the community. And what if they said, we don't want to hear a thing you have to say about it. That's kind of where verse 7 goes. And this is also has a, a difficult section too. It says, these who pant after the very dust of the earth on the head of the helpless and turn aside 
the way of the humble. Now that second line, turn aside the way of the humble, that's, the, that's a pretty typical way in the Old Testament of describing justice being denied. They turn you aside. You go for help and they turn you away. So that's pretty clearly that's what it's talking about. The poor get turned away from justice. And you know most countries in the world have pretty corrupt systems of justice and favored people get different standards of justice than poor people. And people, that's certainly true in our country in certain ways. But I mean obviously you can get the most expensive lawyers. That in, in our country that's kind of how that works. You know versus having to go with a guy that doesn't care anything about you that's appointed by the court kind of thing. The first line of verse 7 is usually translated one of two ways. And the Hebrew there is kind of difficult. Many translations, now I've got a New American Standard Bible, 1995 version, and <laughs> it translates it pretty straight. It says, these who pant after the very dust of the earth on the heads of the helpless. So you read that and you go, well who pants after dust on the head of a helpless person? I mean, what does that even mean? Who's longing for the dust on their head, right? Well, that kind of is a cultural thing. Uh, people that grieved and moaned would take dust out of the dirt, dirt. You see people do that in the Middle East today too and they just drop it on their head. They pour it over their head. It's a sign of grieving and mourning. So if you're broke and somebody's going to sell you into slavery or something like that, you might do that, right? And when, and when the point of the picture here, if that's the accurate way to understand this, it's using exaggeration to make a point. These people are so greedy for land that even if you pour it on your head and grieve, that's my land. So it's a way of using exaggeration to say they, they just want everything you've got, you know. So even if you take the dust and pour it on your, that's my dust you're taking there, you can't have that. That kind of a thing. Now they wouldn't really do that, it's just saying it's like that. That's a picture again of, of injustice there, so it's using exaggeration. So that language, um, now there's another way to kind of work this text. So mo most modern translations translate it a little bit differently. They kind of work the Hebrew text to make it suggest grinding the head of the poor person in the dust. And we use that kind of language in our culture, grinding the poor into the dust of the ground, that kind of idea. So it's often translated that way. You're, if you have something different than me, you might have something like that in your Bible. Um, it could go either way. Either one of those is a possible thing. But uh, it, the idea of whatever way you want to take that is greed driving out normal compassion for people. It's this totally cold-hearted, evil um, treatment of the poor without any kind of consideration or compassion for their unique circumstances. There are always individuals who just don't care about people. But when it dominates the culture and society's leaders are like that, that's a serious problem. That's a serious problem. It's a moral disaster actually. The second couplet in verse 7 is another subject here. It's changing subjects. It says a man and his father resort to the same girl in order to profane my holy name. So this is more than just some weird perverse sexual thing going on in one or two cases like this. It's really the second line and kind of expands on what the first line is describing. And profaning God's name suggests idolatry that this um, two, a man and his son using the same woman in an idolatrous situation. So it's probably referring to pa pagan worship. So verse 7 is a particularly gross, abhorrent description of pagan worship in the Holy Land where cult prostitutes were working out of the pagan temples there. Maybe even the temples that were set up to worship Yahweh, the two golden calf 
temples that were used in Israel. But these are God's chosen people doing this. So tragically um, that is not that unusual in parts of the world. In fact in India I think it was 1988 when they finally passed a law against child prostitution in temples that you, underage girls could not be used for prostitution in India. But it still goes on. In fact the Guardian newspaper, the British newspaper um, did a whole series on these poor Indian girls that were sold into slavery for Yel Amma, that's the goddess of fertility in southern India and um, the girls are called Devadasi, they're called servants of God, that's what that word means. And the Guardian did a special feature on this 26 year old woman named Parvatama and she was dedicated to the goddess Yalama when she was 10 in a temple in southern India and so, so when they do that to you, you cannot marry a mortal because you're married to the God. And the article says, I'm just going to quote here, it says, when she reached puberty the Devadasi tradition dictated that her virginity was sold to the highest bidder and when she had a daughter at 14 she was sent to work in the red light district in Mumbai. Parvatama, the, the, the lady in question here, regularly sent money home but saw her child only a few times in the following decade. Now diagnosed with AIDS, she has returned to her village weak and unable to work. We are a cursed community. Men use us and throw us away, she says. Applying talcum powder to her daughter's face and tying ribbons to her hair, she says, I'm going to die soon and then who will look after her? The daughter of Devadasi, Parvatama plans to dedicate her own daughter to Yel Amma. That's paganism. That's paganism right there. Still goes on in the world. That is the wisdom of the gods of India right there. And it was happening in Israel. It was happening in Israel. Now notice how God specifically says that this was done to profane his holy name and that's the idolatrous element of it there. A.J. Mayer wrote a commentary on Amos. He says sexual gratification had replaced the holy name of God as the guiding principle of life. Wow that sounds really familiar. Our culture has made exactly the same choice in terms of that sentence. Sexual gratification has replaced the holy name of God as the guiding principle of life. That's true. That's true in our culture. But ours isn't religious. It's, we have our usual casual lazy secular way about doing these things. But in the ancient world it was religious so they, blend, they blended their immorality with religion. And that's why God gave Moses a law in Deuteronomy chapter 23 verse 17 this law was for Israel and I mean the combined nation back then right? Judah and Israel together. Here it is Deuteronomy 23:17. none of the daughters of Israel shall be a cult prostitute nor shall any of the sons of Israel be a cult prostitute. You shall not bring the hire of a harlot or the wages of a dog into the house of the Lord your God for any votive offering for both of these are an abomination to the Lord your God. So why was 3,500 years ago a guy named Moses, how did he figure out that this was immoral, this thing that all these pagan religions were doing and are still doing around the world today? How did he know that that was an abomination and completely evil? Because it's God's law. That's how God gave him that law. Very common practice in pagan culture, forbidden by God in Israel, his covenant people. Now it gets worse for Israel here. Amos is piling up sins upon sins and vileness upon vileness. So in the law of Moses 
if a very poor person was in debt, they could give their coat as a pledge, the only outer garment they had to keep warm in, they could give it as a pledge to somebody, you can hold my coat and then I will pay you when I can. And if they couldn't pay um, for a little while, every day the, the guy that had the coat, the lender, had to give it back every night so he could sleep in that garment. And then he'd bring it back the next day and he would hold it for him. That was the law because he needed to keep warm and God provided that if you're holding somebody's only possession, precious possession, his coat, you had to give it back every night waiting for him to uh, be able to pay you back. That was, that was the law. Deuteronomy 24.13 is where that law is. Now here's how twisted and perverted the sons of Israel were. Verse 8. On garments taken as pledges they stretch out beside every altar. It's still talking about that pagan sexual practice. And in the house of their God they drink the wine of those who have been fined. In other words they're using poor people's coats held in pledge to make their immoral activities in the temple more comfortable by spreading the garments out on the floor for them. And if there was wine that was taken as a pledge or in um, a fine it says in some kind of court cases or they bought wine with money that they got in fines they brought that along too to keep the party kind of going in the temple there. So it's a completely disgusting picture of callousness towards the needy and self-gratification at a level where decency, all decency was completely put aside. So now at this point in the text, we can move on from that now, thankfully. God starts to remind them of how they came to be there in the first place in, their, in this wonderful land that they're in. He brought them there and they owe him their national existence. Verse 9, yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them though his height was like the height of cedars and he was strong as the oaks. That's poetic. They weren't really at the height of cedars. <laughs> they were tall people. They were very strong. I even destroyed his fruit above and his root below. That's the Amorites. They were very powerful people. Those were the powerful people. Remember how the Israelites entered the, the land? They sent the 12 spies in there and they came back and said, these people are way big. They're just gigantic. We can never defeat them. Remember and Joshua and Caleb said, yes we can. We have the Lord. And everybody else said, no we can't. No we can't. So God made them wander in the wilderness after that. Remember that? That's 40 years in the wilderness because they were so big and so powerful looking and they had these great cities and walls and all this kind of stuff. And God says, um, well verse 10, it was I who brought you up from the land of Egypt and I led you in the wilderness 40 years that you might take possession of the land of the Amorites. I was going to give it to you. And he ultimately did after 40 years. He let that generation kind of die out and brought in the next generation. Even when they sinned and refused to enter the land, he says, I led you in the wilderness for 40 years. He took care of them, provided food from heaven, manna for them for 40 years. Their shoes didn't wear out, their clothes didn't wear out. He got water out of rocks. Whatever they needed to survive in that time period, he provided for them. And then he brought them into the land of the Amorite. And they successfully took it. So he provided for them all the way through until that new generation came that trusted God and went in there and took the Amorites land. The Amorites were completely evil people and their time had come. So it was a just judgment on them and God provided the land he promised to Abraham for Israel. So when the Lord says here he destroyed his fruit above and root below in verse 9 talking about the Amorites he's saying 
everything from the base things they had, the land, their fortresses and all of that kind of stuff, to, to the top, the, the money that they gained from all this power and wealth and all that kind of stuff, he took it all away from them. It was all denied to them. They lost everything. They lost everything. So God rescues Israel from safety, brings them to a land he promised to Abraham, and he defeated what looked like a way more superior people, armed people, huge people, and gave the land to Israel. And all of Israel agreed to be a kingdom of priests for God. A holy nation. That's what they promised to do. All that the Lord has spoken we will do, they said. And they were to represent God to the world. And he did something very special for them. One more thing. Verse 11. Then I raised up some of your sons to be prophets. And some of your young men to be Nazarites. Is this not so, O sons of Israel, says the Lord. So he did more than plant them in the land. He raised up special individuals to help them on the way to stay on the right path. We need that, don't we? You know, human beings, even believers, can easily drift away from the Lord. They can drift off into sin. They can just get lazy. They can do their own thing. The less we place ourselves under God's word and with godly people, the more likely we are to slide into a weak spiritual condition or flat out sin. We need reminders and God provided these reminders. That's why Jesus, well it's one of the reasons Jesus created the church. So we have this place where we go where we hear the word and there's people around us who are walking with the Lord that we can emulate and learn from and help keep us on the path. Regular church attendance reminds us of the gospel and it reminds us of our role in the world so we don't forget and drift away. God gave Israel two reminders he says. First prophets, so prophets received divine revelation from God. They could foretell the future of course. I mean that's how you knew they were prophets. But they gave God's message about following the law of Moses, staying faithful to the Lord. That's what, that was their main purpose to call people back to the law of God, to not drift, not adopt pagan ways, not do those kinds of things. And of course the greatest of those laws was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's what they were called on to do and the prophets would remind them that that's what they were to do. So with prophets there's always a voice calling the people back to their covenant purpose. Believers are called to be a light of the world. They had to be reminded of that. Jesus told us we were that. Israel was to be, Israel was to be light as a holy nation. Christians are to be lights in every nation. We go out and we are lights in every place. A holy people. A holy people. So there were prophets chosen by God and they were a wonderful gift to God's people. Now verse 11 mentions the Nazarites too. So Numbers chapter 6. There's a whole section, a long section about these Nazarite people. And if you're reading the Bible along, you'll probably read through that and go, huh, that was interesting. I wonder who those people are. What's that all about? Well, why, why is there a Nazarite vow? And, and the whole thing in Numbers chapter 6 is this vow that these special people make. And Amos tells us why. It doesn't really tell you in Numbers 6 what their purpose is. It just tells you how they should do it. But Amos is telling us really what it's about. So the Nazarite vow, well the word Nazir means to consecrate somebody, so it's a holiness thing. So a Nazarite vow is a special way 
that individuals who wanted to do something special for God could consecrate themselves in a way that was noticeable in their life. There's some evidence that this was practiced before Moses and before the law of God which is if it's true then it means that God wanted to clarify in the law what he wanted these special people to do. So number six is a whole section on that and anybody anybody could choose to take this vow. That's what made them different than prophets. God calls prophets. But anybody that really had a heart to do it could take this vow. Men and women. It wasn't just a male thing. It was a male and female thing. And it could be for a period of time or it could be for your whole life. Samson was supposed to be a lifelong Nazarite. But he was sort of a vow breaker. Except regarding his hair. He kept that part of it. But here's a summary of what Numbers 6 says about the vow. Mainly it regards things you're not supposed to do. And there were three main things. Now again, this is a way to demonstrate in your life that you've made a special vow to God. uh, A special relationship with God. So the first thing was to abstain from any kind of wine or any fermented liquor. And they were even to abstain from grapes or raisins. Anything related to the vines. They were to abstain from them. Now is that a magic thing? No, it's just one way to show this. Now that, in a culture where everybody drinks some kind of diluted wine, that's just a normal beverage, for you not to partake at all, that's noticeable. Right? Stands out. The second thing was that Nazarite was to let his or her, her hair grow uncut for the length of the vow. Now if you're a lifelong Nazarite, you got quite a pile of hair. You got a nice mane, right? But I mean that was again another sign of that. If it was a lifelong vow, it would have been, that's what Samson, that's why his hair was kept so long. The third thing was for the entire period of the vow there should be no contact with a corpse. Now in the Old Testament law touching a corpse was defiling and they were to never do that. Like usually if you touched a corpse you had to like purify yourself for a week or two or something like that. But a a Nazarite would never be near. Even if their family member died right next to them they were not to touch that corpse. Other people would have to handle that. So um, that was a, a, a commitment. So Number 6, 8 says, all the days of his consecration he is holy to the Lord. So they're holy to God in a special way all this period that they've set aside for this vow. So the primary purpose is to be holy, set apart, consecrated for God. And these were just visible ways of seeing that. And by linking them to the ministry of the prophets now, Amos helps us see that this vow was not just for them personally. I think that's how, what you think when you're reading Um, number six or you're thinking about what a Nazarite was doing it's for them but Amos says it's more than that a a Nazarite is a witness to the whole community there weren't that many prophets and prophets weren't running around all over the place but many people might be Nazarites in your community and every time you met one or saw somebody with a really long hair or uh, you know um, or somebody not partaking of wine or somebody that you knew had made this vow you say that that is a that person is a reminder that we are supposed to be a holy people. Now not in just that way, but it's just a reminder that we're a holy people in all the ways that God calls us to be holy. So it was a, they had this purpose within the culture to manifest themselves to remind people that not only uh, that we are all supposed to be holy. That was their purpose. So that, Amos makes that really clear. Prophet and Nazarite. It was a witness to everyone. So Israel's called to be a holy people. Prophets bring the word of God. Nazarites remind us 
by living in a very noticeable way that we are to live a consecrated life to God, a holy life. Because that was what Israel was supposed to do. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, God told them. And a Nazarite, by taking this vow, is saying, don't forget the holy nation part. And the prophets would say, don't forget the law. Keep the law. So it served this wonderful purpose. It's, you know, there's just some people that are, every church has them, I hope. <laughs> um, just really godly people. Just, they just kind of exude this special godliness. And they're not trying to show anything. Usually they're incredibly humble people. But w- because they're there, you, you know that you can do better. <laughs> and that there's sort of, a, sort of a living standard there. You ever know people like that? We've had people like that in our church. Anita Emerson would be a great example. Everybody knew how godly she was. And, just, and she wasn't at all showy about it. But it, if you knew her, you just knew she was incredibly godly. And she was an inspiration to so many people quietly, kind of behind the scenes, always encouraging people and praying for people and being there for people and things like that. It's a big thing when we lost her. It was a, a noticeable thing. So those people inspire us and they, they uh, remind us of the kind of people we should become, you know, and, and be. So in God's nation, he provided such people with very specific observable traits to remind them of their obligations to the law. So um, at the end of verse 11, God wants an answer from Israel. He says, is this not so? He's reminding them about this. Haven't I sent you prophets? And haven't I raised up Nazarite people to remind you of these things? O sons of Israel, didn't I give you those two reminders? Prophets and the consecrated life, the word of God and the consecrated life. So what did the people of Israel do with the prophets and the Nazarites? Well, it's all there in verse 12. But you made the Nazarites drink wine. And you commanded the prophets saying, you shall not prophesy. So to the word of God people, they said, shut up. And to the Nazarites, they tried to either they forced them or they just tried to tempt them regularly to violate their vows. That's not a godly people. It was probably a fun thing to do to try to trip up a Nazarite, to tempt them or get them to give up on what they would committed themselves to. And the prophets, they tried to shut them up, maybe by mockery, maybe by intimidation, sometimes violence. Many prophets, you know, in the Bible were killed or badly injured. One community actually told Jeremiah, Jeremiah 11:21, they said, "Do not prophesy in the name of the Lord so that you do not die by our hand." They were really clear. That's why he was the weeping prophet. So, so the whole culture despises the saints of God. They hated living reminders of the covenant. They tried to shut them down. We live in a culture like that. They dis- our culture despises godliness. Tries to shut the word of God down. Men are to love God. We're to love our creator. The Israelites love sin. That's what they loved. Amazingly, the Lord still reaches out to them, but his patience has limits. So he warns them that everything that they love and trust in, all this other stuff, is going to be taken away from them. Verse 13, now here's another translation issue thing. My Bible follows the King James and it says, it reads like this, 
Behold, I am weighted down beneath you, God speaking, as a wagon is weighted down when filled with sheaves. So it sees God as the one that's weighted down. And God does talk like this sometimes, like, oh, how long will I put up with you? Those kind of things, you know, that's a a weight we carry, right? So it's that kind of of language there. Um, He has to bear us, you know, he's the one who has to put up with us. Um, So this is another little difficult bit of Hebrew poetry here. Remember, poetry's painting a picture, and it's this laden wagon, laden with sheaves, but sometimes that makes it difficult to interpret for people. It doesn't always tell you exactly who it's about, so translators try to figure that out and supply that. So the poetic picture is burden, right? We're burdened like a heavy loaded wagon. The actual Hebrew words don't make it super clear who's the weight and who's um, the one being burdened, you know? So almost all modern translations say it's Israel that is under the weight of the wagon. Whereas the King James in my Bible would say it's God who's under the, he feels the weight of this burden of Israel on him. So uh, there's certainly validity of both. But modern translations would say something like, that: look, I'm about to crush you in your place as a wagon crushes when full of grain. So when a wagon's really heavily loaded, it breaks up the ground more. You know, it just breaks things. It crushes things, crushes the plants. And he says, I'm going to make you like that. You're going to be crushed under my judgment like that. So it could be either way. It's either God is tired of bearing their load or they're going to be under the load. But the context is super clear about what he's talking about. The failure on their part to trust in God is going to destroy them and they're going to be crushed in some way. An enemy is coming. An enemy far more powerful than their army. An enemy that has the best military leaders in the world. Verse 14. He's describing what's coming. Flight will perish from the swift. From the stalwart. The stalwart will not strengthen his power. Nor the mighty man save his life. He who grasps the bow. Will not stand his ground. The swift of foot will not escape. Nor he who rides the horse. Save his life. Even the bravest among the warriors will flee naked in that day, declares the Lord. So what's he describing there? Well, a military in complete and utter disarray. A a collapsed army. That's what he's describing. Overwhelmed. Broken. And you know who's coming? The Assyrians are coming. If you want to find out about the Assyrians, go to YouTube and watch a video called The Masters of War, the Assyrians. They tell you all about that. They were the first professional army in the world, a standing army. Every other time kings go to war, they grab people, peasants, they, they bring in their things. They might have their, a, a certain core of troops, but it's a small number, and they just bring in all these people and force them to go to war with them, you know, give them some weapons and do that. The Assyrians were the first nation that had an official standing army, a huge army that was professional, that was paid, what today would be normal to us. They invented the wide manufacturing of iron weapons. So if they're going to come against Israel or any of those nations in the the Middle East, they're going to have bronze weapons. And you know what happens when your bronze sword meets an iron sword? Your bronze sword goes right through. (laughs) It gets cut right in half. Doesn't do anything. So they they have a professional army with iron weapons. They were the first nation state to really have a lot of iron weapons and they mass produced them. And they all dressed alike. Nobody had ever done that before either. They had this, this is who we are. Assyrians and they had cool curly beards and all kinds of stuff. They also had a corps of engineers. They were the first nation state to have an official corps of engineers. Uh, You know when they saw great mighty walls they said we can bring those down. 
They didn't say, oh, we'll have to sit out here for a couple of years and wait to, you know, starve them out. They knew how to tear things down. They built giant siege engines, all those things like battering rams and all that kind of stuff. They invented that stuff. Great towers to move up against the wall. They invented that stuff. They were the, they were the masters of war. When I was in Russia, they, in the museum there, they had this whole Assyrian thing, actual Assyrian carvings. They were like copies of them, but they were all over. They even knew how to cross the moat. They had bladders that they would blow up and, and hold them under their bellies and they floated themselves across the moat to get to the other side to attack you. I mean, they were brilliant. Yeah, they've actually got pictures of those guys swimming with a, this pig's bladder under their body. It's just amazing stuff. They were experts in warfare. And they're coming for Israel. So, just north of Israel was Syria and just north of Syria was the Assyrian Empire. And they were going to come and take Syria away and then they're going to come and take Israel away into captivity and destroy them. That's what's coming. God is bringing them on. So they're still from Amos' time. They're about 35 years away from that. 40 years or so away from that happening. But God is telling his prophets that if they don't straighten up, if they don't come back to the law, if they don't repent and come back to the Lord, they're going to fall under the Assyrian army. And they aren't going to repent. They don't. So he's telling them exactly why they're going to fall and why that's going to happen. They've abandoned their God. They've abandoned the true God. They've abandoned the Redeemer God. So on a scale of spirituality, they were at the lowest point you can be. They've decided, finally decided, committed, committed to the, be against God. The God that brought them there. The God of Moses. The God of Abraham. They're against him. They scoff at the truth. Being a scoffer is your lowest position spiritually. They aren't a mess. They're way beyond mess. They're evil. They're, they've completely given themselves over to it. They've chosen sin in every way. They live in unbelief. They're utterly, completely lost. And God is still reaching out to them. He's sending the prophets. So Amos is warning them that this will come if they don't change. So they were unjust, immoral, and mocked holiness. So the prophet is saying it will come to an end in a way you don't like. You think you've got brave warriors and great archers and all that stuff? They're going to run away. They're going to run away. And they won't even be able to run because they'll be caught. It'll be utterly destroyed. So the rest of Amos is carefully dissecting Israel along the same lines we've just talked about today. And it's uh, it's it's kind of the opening of books and this is your record kind of thing here. This is what God sees in you people. So the prophet is telling them that. And um, this is who you are. This is what it will mean for you. There's a lot of parallels to our time. A lot of parallels. Let's pray. So stay tuned. Lord let us with a, a holy fear see what Israel became and let it cause us to run to you for mercy. Give us as believers the heart of the prophet and the Nazarite, willing to speak your word, to love your word, and living as an example of holiness. We can't do that except by your spirit and by grace, but by your power we can do that. And we ask you to help us Set our course in that direction, Lord, so that we can become pleasing to you and a light to our world. In Christ's name we pray, amen.